Now this, interestingly enough, carries on from Easter. You remember that we looked at a couple of disciples who are looking at life through their own grid. Their understanding of what they hear, what they see, their experience. And you know, their experience failed them. Their grid told them that everything was in the toilet. Jesus was dead and dead is dead and so that's it. And because of that, they were discouraged and they didn't know what to think. And Jesus taught them that there is a grid that you must look through to get everything right in life. It's the grid of Scripture. Now, when we come to Jesus, we begin a process of exchanging our grids for a new one to look through and to evaluate everything through. And we have to make this transition. We have to. There is no, oh, well, it would be nice if you would do that, because it won't even work. So we got to learn to think again. And for some of us, we have to learn to think, period. And I'm not trying to be funny there. It's the hardest thing in the world to get somebody to think. And yet that is what we must do to be Christians. We are the only ones who are using our brains for the reason that God gave them to us. Of all the people in the world, Christians have to be the ones who think. Well, here's what we're thinking about. We're thinking about hope. That is where we are going in the future. And we're thinking about the way in which we get to the future. And that is the command, be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And then we're thinking about the motive, the power, the mainspring behind all that we do as we think about where we're going and how to get there. What's the motive? What's going to propel us forward? And that is the fear of God. So we're looking at three commandments today and then how we listen and obey those commandments. Is everybody with me? I'm reading in 1 Peter 1 from verse 13. Peter says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish, without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So the first command that Peter gives as a result of everything he's been saying up until now is 
know where we are going. That's hope. Now, he's already said there in in verse 3 that our God and Father has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That hope is to receive the end of our salvation. It's all going to come to fruition, perfection, and that is to be glorified with Christ. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then we also will be revealed with him in glory. That's where we're headed. That's Colossians 3, verse 4. And this is what we're living for in our lives. That is, we're not expecting satisfaction in this life. You know that everything is futile? Verse 18, uh, Peter says, you're redeemed from your aimless conduct. Aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. This is the way to go, son. Get married, have 2.2 kids, get your retirement together, and then die. Thanks, Dad. That's it. Son, this is what we do. (laughs) We have aimless conduct, and then we die. Really? Well, we don't expect satisfaction in this life. Does everybody get it? Everything we inherit from our fathers is futility. Now, if you look through the Bible, the Bible specifies certain things that are completely futile. For example, beauty is futile. Empty, vain. Did you know that children are futile? Look at you. (laughs) Hey, but I was one once too. Um, And finally, just to be comprehensive here, the Bible says that everything is futile. Everything, everything, everything is futile. Nothing. Empty. Vain. Everything. So you know what that means? There's no hope in this life. Now in Philippians 3, Paul said that whatever things were gained to him, that's the good stuff. He counted his loss for Christ. You can't have them both. Okay, I'll give up all this good stuff to have Christ. And then he says, more than that, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. See, to Paul, gaining Christ was the overall goal of his life. And in comparison, everything else was garbage. And somebody said one time, if you ever want to find out what people are striving for and fighting and working for and giving their whole lives for, just go to the tip. And as you look over it, it's all there. Furniture, computers, cardboard boxes, everything that came from Amazon, I mean Amazon. You receive it from Amazon, and you're just a holding station for a little while till you pass it to its final destination, which is the tip. You are a garbage waste station. You only hold on to this stuff for a little while, and then Papa Tip gets it all. Come to me, children. 
So Peter commands, fix your hope fully on that grace that is going to come to you when Jesus is revealed. There's something to hope about. Now, we got to look at life through this grid. We got to look at life through this grid because otherwise we're not going to see rightly. When you look at the future, what do you see? See, we don't look at the future. And when we do, we see death. And I don't know about you, but I don't like death. It freaks people out. That's why people are freaked out right now. Because death has been pushed into our faces. And because of that, they've taken civil liberties away, plunged our nation into debt that we may not be able to recover. Death. Well, everybody freaks out at death. But when we look at life, we don't see death. Not if we have the right grid. We see glory. That's where we're headed. We do not hope to die. We're going to go to be with Jesus. We're going to go to life. So what compares to the resurrection from the dead? What compares to eternal life? You ever ask that question? Like a new series on Disney Plus? Is that as good as eternal life or even better? Or a promotion in your job or a raise? Does that compare to eternal life? You know, if you think about it, you have to come to this conclusion. Nothing beats eternal life. That's it. So in order to keep this hope, you have to think about it. Did you get that? Paul thought about it a lot. For example, he wrote in Philippians 3, verse 20, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Our bodies are going to be radically transformed. And that's what Paul's looking at. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now that means something to people who live in a different country than they were born in. You know that fabulous feeling when you show up in that country in which you were born. And some people are kind of hoping they'll get in and probably will get in, but you, my friend, are a citizen. And you whip out that passport and they say, good morning, Mr. Dingman, how are you? And I say, racked, I've been on a 10-hour flight. They go, well, thank you, have a great time in the United States. And I say, yes, I will. This is my country. These are my people. <laughs> it's a big difference. Imagine going to heaven and they take your passport. They say, Mr. Dingman, welcome to your country. Thank you. These are my people. <laughs> Our citizenship is in heaven, it's where we belong. All right, 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not clothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. 
Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Have you ever felt like you're living in a tent? Anybody ever camped? Oh, man. See, in the Boy Scouts, that's what you do. And it makes you a man because you suffer. And I've spent my time in a tent. (sighs) Enough said. But you groan while you're in a tent. (laughs) You groan, my friend. And you don't want to be unclothed. You want to be clothed. Imagine on your best day how you feel right now. That's just a tent. What happens when you're clothed with eternal life? What's that going to be like? I don't know. I'd like to find out. We are going to find out. That's the whole point. Now, there's many, many places like this all through the New Testament and even in the Old Testament. This is where we're going. This is our hope. Now, there's two ways in which we carry out this command to hope. Look what Peter says here. He says, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. These, are, these modify how we are to obey this command to hope. Now, Gird up your loins. I'm sorry about my translation. Others will say, prepare your minds for action. Everybody used to wear flowy robes back then. That's why all those period things like the chosen, everybody's got these robes on. But the problem is all these flowy robes get in the way if you're going to do something like lift that box or run. So what they would do is take all the flowy robe stuff and tuck it up into their belt, their gird, and then all that stuff is out of your way and you're ready to do something. And when you get done, well, you take it out and everything's nice and flowy and you look right. So Peter is saying, do that with your brain. In other words, be ready. Be ready for action. And... When you're doing something for action, that means that you have to prepare to exert yourself. Action doesn't mean, okay, I'm all set, ready to go, I'm going to fall back on the sofa. That's not prepared for action, folks. And in fact, action involves doing something like engaging in something daring or difficult. Right? You work to do something. Now, you know, this goal of being glorified with Jesus, it is a daring goal. And it is a dangerous goal. Do you know why? Because the world is all going like this direction to destruction. And we're the ones going this way. And we are opposed to the world. We are opposed to the devil. He's, he's right there to say, no, you're not. And even our own bodies rise up against us and just say, no, we're not going to do this. We're going to live this way just like everybody else. So we actually are doing something difficult and even dangerous. Now, this hope that we have of being glorified with Jesus is worth all the action it takes to get there. And you're going to have to stand up. You're going to have to exert yourself. If you don't, you're going to be like a dead fish floating on the river to destruction. Does everybody get that? If you don't swim this way, because you're a live fish 
and live fish swim upstream, you're not going to get where you want to get to. Now, if you don't think that the where you're going is important enough, you're going to give up and say, mm, too much work, I don't want to do this. But if all your hope is set on that goal of glory and being with Jesus, then nothing's going to hold you back, see? And it's worth every effort that you make. You know what I find out? Everything that's worth doing is hard. And everything that's easy to do is insignificant. Check that out on things that you like to do and don't like to do. A lot of the stuff you don't like to do is worth something. That's why it's difficult. And everything that's easy is just kind of like nothingsville. It's nothing. Check that out. So what you got to decide is this idea that being with Jesus in glory is worth action. It's worth making an effort. Now here's the other way that we are hoping, and that is be sober. Now, the opposite to being sober is to be intoxicated. And when you're intoxicated, you give yourself basically over to the control of something else. And it's the abuse of alcohol, the abuse of drugs, the abuse of pornography, the abuse of just YouTube or Netflix or just setting your mind in neutral. It is the abuse of these things. And when you're intoxicated, one of two things happens, or maybe both. You get stimulated and wound up beyond normal. Or else you get stupefied. And that's why people do things. Either it's a thrill, or it's just, I want to go blotto and just not think. And either way, it's an escape. To be intoxicated is an escape that doesn't work. And there's a lot of things you can do to be intoxicated. All right? So I mentioned drugs, alcohol, sexual things. You can be into anything. And that will be enough to either exhilarate you and engage you, or else stupefy you so that you're not in control. Whatever gets you off your main goal reduces your control, reduces your readiness for action. Does everybody get that? The price of being intoxicated is that something else is controlling you. You lose your readiness and you waste time. Time is probably the most valuable possession you have. And if you waste it, you can never get it back. It's one of the side problems, call it a main problem, of being intoxicated. You are wasting valuable and precious time. So you really can't afford to let anything intoxicate you. So you have to watch out for what you allow into your mind. Does it forward you in your goal to be with Jesus in glory? Or does it intoxicate you, slow you down, and basically point you in the opposite direction that you do not want to go? Does it make you focus on Jesus? Or does it fight against Jesus for who is the boss in your soul? Now, in order to get to this goal of the resurrection, there is a way that we go to it. And it is the way of holiness. 
That's why there's this command in verse 16, be holy, for I am holy. Now, holiness is essential to God's nature. It's who he is. And the whole point of being glorified with Jesus is that we will be like him. We will be like him. And so if we're going to be like him, we are also going to be holy. Now, there's a negative aspect to holiness. It is absolute purity. So that means not mixed with anything that is degrading, corrupt, or that kills. Unholiness kills. Do you remember hearing about the scandal that happened with baby formula and that babies were dying and they found it was in the baby formula and they found out what it was. That certain farmers in an Asian country were stretching their milk to make more money. They would add water to it and then they found that if they ground up melamine, which is a plastic, very fine, and mix it in with the stretched milk, it would look white and thick like milk is supposed to do. So they made more money by adding, corrupting, adulterating the milk. But the problem is the melamine was killing babies. So Holiness means without anything that corrupts or kills. That's the negative sense. But the positive sense is that holiness is characterized by love. In 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul says, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness. If we're to grow in holiness, we have to grow in love. And a holiness that isn't characterized by love isn't holy. They have to go together. So, love is pure, and love gives life. Holiness gives life. Anything that corrupts holiness kills. So there's a connection between holiness and love and life. That's what our lives are to look like. Now, that means that Jesus is our standard for how we're doing and not people. And I say this because people in the world are living a futile life, empty life. It's not characterized by love. They can be self-centered. They can be rude. They can be insulting and uncaring. But, you know, even people in the church can be rude, uncaring, unholy. And so we don't even look at people around us to see how we're doing. But we have to look at Jesus. That's who you have to compare yourself to. And when you do that, of course, you can't think you're doing a fabulous job. Because only Jesus is holy and pure and loving. So this is the thing that humbles you. Humbles you. If you're holy, you must be humble. Because that's what Jesus is like. Okay, now here are two ways to pursue holiness. Notice in verse 14, as obedient children. And then not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. So th this is how you pursue holiness, as children of God. See, you're not trying to be children. 
You are God's children right now. You're not trying to attain to it. You know, my kids don't come up to me and say, Dad, someday I hope to be your child. I know I'm not doing a very good job. But someday, Dad, I'm going to work on it. I'm going to be your child. I would say, kid, it's too late. You already are my kid. Even if you are a schlump. But I would never say that. See, we already are God's children. So we're there. We're born of the Holy Spirit. God really is our Father who is in heaven. So by the same token, we are not on our own to become holy. We're not doing this by ourselves. If we could be holy on our own, then Jesus died for nothing. So we pursue obedience. Uh, holiness as obedient children. And you know, obedience really means listening. It, it, the two are synonymous. You listen and you obey. If you don't obey, you're not listening. So we listen to Jesus' command, abide in me and I in you. If you don't abide in me, you can do nothing. And we go, yeah, that's me. I want to listen to that commandment. And remember that as we abide in Jesus, his spirit abides in us, and the fruit of the spirit is love. There's our holiness. So as we yield to the Holy Spirit, he's going to undo our being conformed to the lust of this world, because that's the second thing here, not conforming yourselves. We come to Jesus conformed, squeezed into a mold. And mentally, that's looking through the grid that we're used to looking through, where we go by what we see, what we hear, what we think, what other people think. And that grid is about lust desiring without being able to be satisfied. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. I want everybody to bow down and worship me, and I want everything that I see. All right? When we received Jesus, those lusts became the former lusts, and they don't belong to us anymore. They went with the old man who was crucified with Christ. And so that stuff comes up, but we say, you know what? That's not mine anymore. I refuse that. And the Holy Spirit enables us to resist being conformed to this lust because greater is he who is in us than he who's in the world. So... This is a process by which we come to love what God loves and we hate what God hates. And it is not light and easy. It is painful. It is ongoing. It is humbling. That's why we need to have our minds girded for action. But all this pain and suffering is absolutely necessary. And as we reach that glorious goal, it's all going to be worth it. But we do it with Jesus, not on our own, right? And now we come to the most important thing. This is the motive, the power, the spring, the the power to move us to get from where we are to where we want to be. And that is the fear of God. 
Verse 17, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. And it really does mean fear. Every single time you read about that, it does mean fear. And some people go, really? Fear? And they see it as a negative thing. Oh, you want to be neurotic. You want to just run around and you're afraid of God all the time and you live a life of fear. Why don't you be like us? We're not afraid of God. We run around. We have all the fun we want. We do what we want. You're crazy to run around afraid of God. I'm not afraid of God. I'm not afraid of Tinkerbell. Sounds old-fashioned, doesn't it? Fear of God. Well, the fear of God is different from all the other fears. Because all the other fears we have are unclean. And they make us unable to face that thing that we're afraid of. Like, if I'm afraid of spiders, then I'm going to call Joni to come and kill it. And in connection with this, I remember a true incident when I was in the Philippines for the first time in my life. And I went to take a shower at the guest house. And there in the shower, eating the soap, was the largest cockroach I'd ever seen in my life. And I didn't know what to do. So I said to the, the lady in the guest house, I said, there's a cockroach eating the soap. And she came in to the bathroom, and she looked at it. She picked it up and went like this, and looked at me and walked out. And now I was afraid of her, too. In Psalm 19, <laughs> she was something else, man, I'll tell you. In Psalm 19, it says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The fear of the Lord is clean. Do you know what that means? There's nothing in it impure. It's free from everything that corrupts and kills. Amazing grace. In that song, it says, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears relieved. And the fear of the Lord actually enables you to face God without fear. Because what the fear of God does is it powerfully motivates you to make your life conform to God so that when you stand before him, you will stand before him blameless without fear. And if you fear God, you find that you cannot continue in any moral corruption. And here's the reason why. Look at verse 17. God, your Father, is the one who without partiality judges according to each one's work. This is the reason to fear God. Because no matter what you're doing, if you believe God and if you don't, you're still headed toward the same place at the rate of 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you are headed to judgment before God. And he assigns rewards and he assigns punishments. And it doesn't matter who you are. If you're big or if you're small, there's nobody too big or too small to be judged by God. Well, I didn't do very much. Well, it doesn't matter. You're going to stand before God. 
You're going to give an account of your life completely without spin, and God is going to judge impartially. Doesn't matter if you're cute, young, old, ugly, or even a child of God or not a child of God. Jesus taught the fear of God. He says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do, but I will warn you who to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we're made manifest also in your consciences. And the word that Paul uses there is terror. In other words, we grasp this fact that we are going to stand before Jesus and he's going to judge us for the things we've done in the body. And that has motivated me. And specifically, when I find myself doing things that I know I'm going to get judged for. This has really motivated me. So then, brethren, we're under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Now, you know what a son of God is who is not being led of the Holy Spirit? Acting in a very illegitimate way. This is not how the sons of God act. This is how people in the world act. So it brings up the question, which one are you? Are you a child of God? Or are you a child of the devil? And see, it's manifested by our actions, not by our intents. Well, I'll tell you what. If you live according to the flesh, you must die. And that has powerfully motivated me to say, God, have mercy on me. Teach me your ways. Teach me how to walk in the Spirit so that I put to death the deeds of the body. Because there's no other way than to humble yourself before God and say, God, teach me. And see, God's going to answer that prayer. Because he is good and teaches sinners in the way. And suddenly, you have a world of motive to do anything that God shows you how to do. Because you know what? Your life is at stake. Now, I know this sounds tough. The other, on the other hand, God knows what it's going to do for you. Powerfully. Ah, motivating. And you ought to be respecting your Heavenly Father. Now, here's how we fear God as our Father who's in heaven. And the writer to the Hebrews says, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, 
of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. So see, if you respect your father when you do something that he doesn't like and you're scared to death, that's good. You ought to be. And we fear God as we hold the blood of Jesus to be precious. See, in verse 18, or 19, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ. See, we can't be redeemed with gold and silver, perishable. It's not worth anything. But only the blood of Christ can make us holy. And so that's why the writer to the Hebrews says that if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think he'll deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, you know why the writer to the Hebrews wrote that letter? Because this group of Hebrews was essentially losing their fear of God and drifting because of it, intoxicated. And that is the most fearsome epistle in the whole Bible, I would think. And it worked. Every time you read Hebrews, you go, yep, get it. Don't want to fall into the hands of the living God like that. Hey, you got plenty of momentum to exert yourself. So what do you do? Okay, we've talked about a lot of stuff today. And it almost feels like juggling. These are all the things I need to juggle in my life, all 47 of them. And you know what kind of a juggler I am. There's my spiritual life on the floor. I just dropped every one of these things that I need to cover. Aren't I a fabulous juggler? And you could feel at this moment like, oh my gosh, what am I supposed to do here? Let me suggest this. Take it for what it's worth, all right? If I were you, I would ask God, God, teach me the fear of you. Because everything is going to come out of that. Now, wouldn't that be an interesting thing to say, okay, God, why don't you teach me to fear you and see what God does? Because, see, when he teaches you, you're going to learn it. And you're not going to regret it. You know that our problem is not that we're afraid of God. Our problem is we're not afraid enough of God. And people who aren't in Christ aren't afraid of God at all when they need to be. Now, it's so interesting how you can develop the fear of God if you want to pursue it. One is by being filled with the Holy Spirit. You can say, God, will you fill me? Because this is who the Holy Spirit is. This is Isaiah 11. He is 
the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And it says of the Messiah that he will delight in the fear of the Lord. See, Jesus delighted in fearing the Lord. And you will delight in fearing the Lord. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? But this is different than cockroaches. I never will delight in cockroaches. This is my promise to you. But I delight in the fear of the Lord. It is clean. Here's the second way to do this. Proverbs chapter 2. It's a lot about getting the word of God into you. Receive my words. Treasure my commandments within you. Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. Cry for discernment. Lift your voice for understanding. Seek her as silver. Search for her as for hidden treasures. Then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Do you know if you read your Bible, you will grow in the fear of the Lord. There's two ways to approach this. And the fear of the Lord is going to get you where you need to be. Ready for action? Sober? Um, pursuing holiness? Firmly fixed on where you're going, which is to be glorified with Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are speaking. And I may be speaking too much, but I pray that all of us here would have you working in our lives and that we would be into it. It will be most into it if you give us that godly fear that we need. Do that for each one of us. We commit ourselves into your hand and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.